Welcome to Know Your Bible, a program presented by the Churches of Christ and devoted to helping you understand God's Word. The Bible is a book inspired by God and it contains answers to your questions. The Bible reveals Jesus and explains His sacrifice, contains God's plan for the family, and timeless principles of parenting. Also has the truth about life and death. The Bible contains great financial advice and also answers questions of morality. Join us as we look for answers to your questions and help you know your Bible. Good morning. Welcome back to Know Your Bible. Glad you're with us today and ready to study the Bible a bit. That's what we do each week is take viewers' questions and try to find answers in the Bible. You'll notice there's a website and a phone number at the bottom of your screen. You can use those anytime to get in touch with us. Let us know what you'd like us to talk about, and you direct the program. So that's the way we work. Let me introduce Toby Levering. Good morning, Toby. Hi, Steve. I'm glad you're back and ready to go. And, of course, we always start with a question for our viewers, so let's give them that. Uh, this one is about Samson. He told a riddle one time. Uh, and there was something in it about honey, and I want to know if you know where the honey was hidden in uh, Samson's riddle. So that's our trivia question for the day. You see if you and your family know the answer to that, and we'll give you the answer at the end of the program. All right, back to real questions. I think you got the first one of the day. I do. Someone uh, is very astute and paying <laughs> attention to the Scripture. They say, an eye for an eye, and turn the other cheek contradict each other. Why is that? Uh, well, an eye for an eye is a, a kind of a well-known uh, phrase. It comes from the Old Testament, and it was the old uh, under the old law, the system of of justice that if a person damaged someone's eye, that they had the right to damage someone else's eye. And you'll see that not just eye for an eye, but in in dealing with human beings from human to human, or if someone was injured or had an animal that was injured or. It just in any sort of way, there was a, a system of fairness and justice all throughout the old law. And this person says, well, okay, that's, I understand that, but then turn the other cheek, that sounds different. Well, you're very correct. Uh, Jesus uh, brought these two uh, phrases together when he addressed them in the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 and 39. Let's look at this together. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And uh, this is found in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' uh, message to his disciples about how to live and how to act as a follower of him. Uh, he, he uses this phrase often, you've heard it was said, but I say. And so what he's doing here is saying, uh, really holding his disciples to a higher standard than the old law. He's not just making it a matter of outward behaviors, but also working on the condition of the heart. Uh, not just thinking about what I deserve, what's right, what's fair, justice, but also addressing uh, the greater, weightier matter of mercy and grace. And so in to understand this Effectively, we have to understand that in Christ, we believe that Jesus uh, makes all the inequities fair. Uh, Jesus, in a sense, becomes our justice, and He's going to make all, He's going to work all of that out. And that, of course, requires faith and trust on our part. And He's going to work out the inequities. So, 
as followers of Christ, we're seek not to worry about getting what our rights or getting what we deserve, but as often as we can to trust in the Lord, uh, to let Him work out. We let Him deal with our enemies. We let Him deal with inequities uh, because He is, uh, is the way to work things out. Hope that helps. All righty. Thank you. And uh, when you're talking about eye for an eye being the old system of justice, uh, made me think that sometimes we take that the wrong way and think it means if somebody hurt, hurts you, you've got to hurt them. Correct. Yeah, uh, yeah. If they hurt your eye, you've got to take their eye. Yeah. Uh, and actually what God was doing was limiting things yeah, yeah. and saying you can't, can't hurt go. them more than they hurt you. That's right. Yeah. Uh, if they break your arm... Yeah. Okay, don't kill them. You <laughs> yeah, know, you yeah. <laughs> break their arm, but don't do any more. Limited vengeance, yep. right? <laughs> yep. All righty. Somebody wants to know, what does the Bible say about children born out of wedlock? Well, I imagine some of our viewers think, well, the Bible says probably a lot about that, but it really doesn't. It doesn't say anything about it. Uh, the Bible does teach that marriage is the place for sex. So obviously children ought to come in marriage, uh, but the Bible doesn't say anything about uh, children born out of wedlock. Some people think it does because there's an unfortunate translation in the King James translation. If you look up Deuteronomy 23.2 uh, in the Old Testament, it's talking about who can worship in the uh, assembly of the Israelites and who can go into the, the temple and all that. Uh, and it uses a Hebrew word that says polluted is the actual translation. It says no one who's uh, polluted can go into the assembly of the worship. And the King James translators, for some reason, uh, translated that with the word bastard, which generally and until recently probably, uh, was used the term used for illegitimate children or children born out of wedlock. So some people see that and think, well, he's talking about children born out of wedlock. Uh, that's not what the word meant at all. It meant polluted, and it referred to foreigners, basically, or somebody born from a, a mixed marriage, if an Israelite married uh, somebody from a, a pagan nation. And in fact, if you read a little bit further, the next verse talks about Ammonites and uh, Moabites and Edomites, and that's who we were being prohibited from the worship. So some people see that word and think, well, he's talking about children born out of wedlock, and they couldn't even go into the assembly. So uh, that says something about them, but that's not what the verse is about. And as far as children born out of wedlock, the Bible doesn't really say a thing about it. All right, next viewer asked the question, what does it mean to grieve the Spirit? Okay, this phrase comes from the book of Ephesians, and it, to understand it, a little bit of context will always help our discussion as we look at a particular verse. But Paul begins by laying out the first half of the book and understanding why we believe what we believe as followers of Christ. And then in the last part of the book lays out how to live that out, how uh, to live out the, the reasons that we believe. And so in this part of the book, he's getting into very practical applications of how Christians should live. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, which contains a specific uh, phrase you mentioned. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, I will say that some translations 
They don't say grieve the Spirit, they say quench the Spirit, uh, which maybe gives us a picture that uh, it, it's kind of suppressing a fire. Uh, you know, we, of course, understand that when a person is baptized into Christ, they not only receive the forgiveness of their sins, but according to Acts 2.38, they also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit that dwells within them. Uh, we uh, can't address the totalness of the Holy Spirit here, but we understand that He's given to each of us as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Uh, he's part that dwells within us. He helps us on, along our way. He uh, prompts us, I believe, to remember things and reminds us of the promises of Scripture. He won't act in a way that is outside of what Scripture teaches. And uh, He's a helper. He's a guide. And the, the Scripture here is simply say, don't suppress that. Don't quench that. Don't grieve that which is in, when, within you. Meaning, don't do that which is counter if the Spirit's telling you you ought to go do this or you know be careful and stay away from this uh, it, you you should listen to that heed that advice listen to the counselor uh, that is giving you that counsel so uh, what we need to understand is that he's effectively saying you know make sure that you live your lives in a way that not only adhere to the promises of God's word but yield to the spirit which uh, inspired those very words and so when believers don't allow the spirit to be seen in our actions uh, we do what we know is wrong and we don't do what we know is right and we understand that uh, people that uh, claim to follow Christ but don't live like Christ called us to live. Those are people who are uh, grieving the Spirit or quenching the Spirit. Um, Galatians chapter 5 verses 22 uh, gives us kind of a good uh, litmus test, if you will. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Uh, if you're seeing these qualities more and more, my guess is you're allowing the Spirit to uh, guide your lives and your actions. If you're suppressing the Spirit, if you're quenching the Spirit, grieving the Spirit, you're not going to see much of His qualities in that life. So uh, yield to the Spirit, uh, follow His instructions, especially as given and laid out specifically in the Word. Hope that helps. Alrighty. Uh, you mentioned, Toby, that the Spirit wrote the Word for us. He gave us instructions on how to live life and all that. And uh, when we don't obey it, when we don't follow it, we grieve Him. Uh, leads me to think about our correspondence courses and our mm. uh, teaching materials that we have. Uh, some people don't ever look at it, mm -hmm. uh, don't pay any attention to the Bible, and surely that grieves the Spirit in mm -hmm. some way. So one thing we do on this program is advocate Bible study. We uh, want everybody to get into the Bible and see what God has to say and what the Spirit has left for us. So we've got some free materials that help people do that. Uh, we know a lot of our viewers are regular students and know a lot of Bible and we've got a lot of viewers that just never got started in Bible study. So we've got some tools that help you study the Bible, help you get acquainted with your Bible. Uh, you see the one course that we have on the screen right now. There's eight lessons in it, and they're uh, pretty basic and pretty uh, a general overview of the Bible. Great way to get started. We've got some more advanced courses that we can keep you studying the Bible beyond this, but uh, this is a good way to start. And there's a phone number and a website 
on the screen all the time. Use those anytime you want and uh, say, I'd like that free course. We'll get it to you. And it is absolutely free. We even pay the postage. So all you have to do is uh, spend a little time reading and studying and thinking about the Bible. And uh, that will not grieve the Spirit. It will make Him happy probably. Mm -hmm. So sign up and get started on that. And we're happy to provide it for you. All right, uh, got some detailed instructions here in this question, or uh, this instruction, I guess. It says, read Acts 2.38 and Matthew 28.19, and then clarify that there is only one baptism. Well, that's all right, I can do that. It's my assignment, let's get started. First of all, let's read the two verses. Uh, viewer said to read Acts 2.38. It says, repent and be baptized. In the name of Jesus Christ. And Matthew 28, 19 says, uh, Go into all the world and baptize people, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All right, so our viewers laid those two verses out, and I just put parts of it up there because I'm sure the viewers talking about the two parts that you can see in the name of Jesus Christ and in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then he said, After you read those, clarify that there's only one baptism. Uh, so we'll look at another verse that clarifies that and we'll have our assignment done. Let's look at uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, Paul said in the letter to the Ephesians, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to you all. There's one Lord, there's one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. All right, so Paul himself, the apostle, the divinely inspired apostle, said there's one baptism. So I think that clarifies it. I don't uh, think there's much more that needs to be said. Uh, however, <laughs> I'll say just a little more because what our viewers talking about is there are some people that look at those two verses that our viewer suggested, uh, and one says, be baptized in the name of Jesus, and one says, be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and some people make a real big deal out of that. In fact, there are religious groups that have split over that, uh, where some believe that when you baptize someone, uh, you've got to say, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and other people believe that you've got to say in the name of Jesus. That's all you can say. So some people make a deal out of that. It's split churches, in fact. Uh, the problem is what those two verses say is not a formula. It's not a formula of words that have to be said at baptism. Uh, what those two different sounding things are is two different descriptions of what you're doing. When we baptize people, we baptize them in the name of or by the authority of Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, by the authority of Jesus. Uh, they're all one. It's just a different way of saying it. Uh, so it's not a formula that you've got to say these exact words when you baptize someone. It's a description of what you're doing. Uh, you could say, I'm baptizing you. Uh, because Jesus said to be baptized. I'm baptizing you uh, because the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have all authority and they told us to baptize people. 
You can say it a lot of different ways, but you're just describing what you're doing. So I hope that helps our viewer understand that there is just one baptism and not a formula of how you say something when you baptize the person. So hope that helps. All right. A viewer asked the question pertaining to Jesus' age. Where does it say Jesus lived 39 years on earth? <clears throat> well, I don't think it specifically says that Jesus lived to 39 years. In fact, we're really not told anywhere that the Bible specifically mentions how, how old Jesus was when he died. Now, the Scripture does tell us very specifically how old he was when he began his public ministry. According to the Gospel of Luke, verse, chapter 3, verse 23, uh, the good doctor there writes, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son of Joseph, as was supposed. Okay, so during... Uh, Jesus was 30 when it started. If you go through the gospel accounts, uh, you count up three Passover. Passover is the annual feast of the Jews uh, celebrating God's deliverance uh, out of Egypt. And that happened, of course, annually, as we said, once a year. And so you put those two things together. Jesus was 30 when he started, celebrated three Passovers uh, before he died. So he must have been around the age of 33. That's just uh, using some logic and reason. Um, but this Bible never says precisely his exact age uh, that he was when he died. Uh, Luke mentions that he was about 30 when he started. Uh, so again, we don't know how, how accurately they kept records of age and anything like that. So the Bible just doesn't tell us exactly, but we can get pretty close to say he was in the area of his early 30s, probably around age 33, uh, best as we can figure. So I hope that helps. Right, a question about shunning. A viewer wants to know, is shunning a Christian practice? Well, it depends on what you mean by shunning. Uh, the term itself is not in the Bible. Uh, the practice of shunning uh, has different meanings in different religious groups. Uh, and I'm sure our viewer is familiar with one or a specific one that they're thinking about. Uh, I know some folks from some religions uh, do practice it and call it shunning. Uh, I talked to a couple one time that uh, had been a part of a religious community. Uh, they still lived in the area where they were worshiping with this group uh, and they had converted uh, to another church belief, and they were shunned. Uh, the community shunned them. Now, what that meant in that community uh, was that they weren't accepted into society in many ways. Uh, they couldn't go to the grocery store in that community. They had to send somebody else, another relative that hadn't been shunned, had to go buy their groceries for them. Uh, they still went to weddings in the community and things like that. But when they did at the meal after the wedding, uh, they had to sit at a separate table. Uh, they couldn't sit with everybody else. There was a table for them because they were being shunned. And there were lots of other practices they told me that about that were kind of interesting. Uh, so some people practice it to that degree and uh, make shunning that kind of a thing. Uh, the Bible does have the principle of not fellowshipping 
with certain people, uh, but doesn't use the term shunning, and it doesn't specify how or why we're supposed, or uh, doesn't specify how we're supposed to not fellowship. Let me read one verse that uh, illustrates the principle. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 11, and Paul's writing to Corinth where they had all sorts of problems. They had lots of people that weren't behaving rightly. And he said, now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, uh, but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slandered or a drunker or a swindler. Don't even eat with such people. Okay, so what Paul's talking about is a Christian brother or sister who doesn't behave like a Christian, who's living a immoral lifestyle. Uh, living a, a sinful lifestyle and still wanting to claim uh, that they're Christian and fellowship with people. And Paul says, don't associate with them, don't even eat with them. Now, in more full context, he explains that the purpose of that is to bring them to their senses, uh, to get them to come back and behave properly. Uh, as an example, let's suppose that uh, Toby begins doing something immoral and sinful, and I tell him, Toby, you can't do that. That's not right. And he says, well, I'm going to do it anyway. And I say, well, then I'm not going to fellowship with you. I'm not going to go to lunch with you. I'm not going to treat you like a Christian brother if you don't behave like one. Yeah, the purpose of that is not to be mean to him or <laughs> shun him. Uh, the purpose is to make him come to his senses and come back to behaving properly. So that's what the, the principle is and how different Christian groups uh, apply that or different religious groups uh, apply that varies all over the, the spectrum. Uh, so no, the Bible doesn't talk about shunning per se, uh, but it does have the principle of not associating with people. So in that sense, it's a Christian practice. Okay, you want to tell them about some uh, I churches? Do. I, I do need to talk about that. Uh, we like to uh, talk about uh, a church that supports Know Your Bible every week, and today it's our turn at the home church of Know Your Bible, Northside Church of Christ up on North Meridian uh, in Wichita. If you're ever close to Wichita or passing through, stop and visit us sometime. Uh, meet at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings. Great group of people and great place to worship. Uh, we have another program there that we like to talk about occasionally, the Celebrate Recovery Program. It's done a lot of good in the community around Wichita. Uh, it's for folks with hurts, habits, and hang-ups of all kinds, and they meet on Thursday nights, every Thursday night at 7 p.m. Uh, if you're interested in getting together with a group of folks that help each other and love each other, good place to start so drop by sometime if you'd if you'd like to on that so uh, visit the church of christ near you wherever you're watching this program there's one close to you uh, and uh, give them a visit sometime and tell them you heard about it on know your bible you just threw me for a loop because you were shunning me so i, <laughs> I, did. I didn't know how to respond <laughs> i decided you couldn't have any more questions <laughs> you were asked the question are the dead sea scrolls considered the word of god <clears throat> well in 1947 a young shepherd uh, chasing after a wayward goat made his way along toward a cave 
and he threw a rock into one of those caves and heard a, the sound of a breaking noise, and that breaking was some clay pots there toward the back of the cave, and within those pots uh, were several leather and papyrus scrolls, a very significant discovery made by that shepherd uh, that uh, some of those uh, scrolls were 20 centuries old. Now, uh, those scrolls specifically, there were over 850 of them, and it wasn't just in one cave. There were actually 11 caves there along the northwest corner of the Dead Sea. Uh, and contained within those scrolls were many copies of Old Testament books. Uh, and they were older by a thousand years uh, than any other original documents we had at the time. Now, within those uh, clay pots, not every scroll was a Bible text. Uh, they contained other things as well. Uh, but the significant part of that is that the biblical scrolls that were contained were uh, so much older uh, than anything they previously had. And when they compared the very oldest versions from this discovery to the versions that we had at that time, uh, what they found was there was very little difference, uh, almost insignificant differences between the, trend, uh, the, the copies that we had versus the original which tells us uh, that we can trust in the Bible text, that we can trust uh, that God's words have been faithfully kept and translated uh, honestly as they have been brought into different languages. Uh, it's a very uh, uplifting discovery archaeologically. Uh, many people have spent a lot of time uh, studying the discovery and looking into it, but the basic point is to understand that uh, God's word is true and it's been faithfully kept. And so it, it's a very wonderful discovery. Uh, but no, there was, it wasn't just biblical scrolls that were discovered. There were other uh, non-inspired works in that discovery as well. Hope that helps. All righty. Good explanation. All right. Got a little uh, timeline thing here. What do B.C. and A.D. really mean? Uh, some people say that B.C. means before Christ and A.D. means after his death. Uh, the trouble is that leaves about 33 years there, unaccounted for. So let's see on the screen what they really mean. B.C. does mean before Christ. And A.D. is a short for a Latin term, Anno Domini, which means the year of the Lord, or the year of our Lord. So that's how we count time, before Christ and after the year he was born, after the year of our Lord. Now, I put down at the bottom there that some people, uh, ac academians, uh, have begun to try to change that and start calling it BCE. You'll see that sometimes in references. And they say that means before the common era. And then today is CE, the common era. Now, that's just starting to kind of catch on, and you'll see it every once in a while. Uh, they think, I guess, that that gets Christ out of it. Uh, let's not talk about B.C. and A.D. because that focuses everything on the Lord. And so they came up with this other deal, B.C.E. and C.E. And uh, the funny part of that is they've still got to date it from the birth of Christ. So they can call it anything they want, but they're still admitting that the birth of Christ was the most important event in history. In fact, that's how we count time. So... 
That's what B.C. and A.D. mean. Let's get our trivia question answered today. It was about Samson's riddle. Uh, in Samson's riddle, where was the honey? And it was in a dead lion, the way he told the story. So that's the answer to Samson's riddle. We're out of time today, but we're going to be back next week uh, to try to answer some more of your questions and hope you're back then. Until then, you have a great week. Know Your Bible has been presented by the Churches of Christ in your area. Churches of Christ are non-denominational and each congregation is an independent group of Christians seeking to do God's will. Our goal is simple New Testament Christianity. We follow the Bible as our only guide. Contact us with any questions and we encourage you to visit a Church of Christ near you.